folks, and welcome welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Zivna Kajimam, again, and this podcast is brought to you, among others, by Native Shark, which is an online platform for learning Japanese. And what Native Shark do is they make learning Japanese really, really simple. You log in, you click a button that says study now, and the platform then shows you exactly what you need to learn next based on your previous progress. Now, again, this is simple, but the way it's designed means that students who use Native Shark once a day for four to five months can complete the equivalent of over two years of university study. And this is not just um, them patting themselves on the back. Now that Native Shark's been in business for over a year, the results are in. So this is exactly what people are saying. Uh, just looking at a couple of posts in their community forums. And the student community, by the way, is one of the best things about the platform. So one person's writing, most productive year I've had learning Japanese. And then another one says, I've started learning over a year ago with all of these other platforms. And what I learned there is only a fraction of what I've learned on Native Shark in just three months. And then yet another one goes, in my mind, my study timeline only started with Native Shark because that's when I really started learning consistently and on and on. So yet the proof's in the pudding. It's definitely the best online course out there. And since you've heard about it here on the podcast, you also get an extra little bonus. If you sign up for their free trial uh, using the URL nativeshark.com forward slash NTI, and we'll link to it in this episode's show notes. So that's native without an E. So N-A-T-I-V shark, all one word, dot com forward slash N-T-I. You use that link to sign up and you'll get a double length free trial. So two weeks free instead of just the one. No need to put in your credit card, anything of that sort. You can just sign up, give it a shot, and chances are at the end of these two weeks, you'll already be far ahead of wherever you are with your Japanese at the moment, whether you're just starting out or you're already in knee deep. Give it a shot, nativeshark.com forward slash NTI. Okay, so for today's episode, this is a recording of a recent business call with a new client from Tokyo. And he's come prepared with a really deep list of topics to discuss, uh, which of course enabled me to also provide deeper answers than usual. So we first talk about purchasing with a loan versus all cash, the advantages and disadvantages, and the, just the different mindset involved in these two strategies. We talk about living in your investment property. So cases where, for instance, someone purchases a small building, lives in one of the units, and then rents out the rest. We also had a really good chat about diversity and hedging and how that looks with different budgets, different property and tenant profiles, different locations. We talk about purchase costs and taxes and buying tenanted versus vacant properties, maintenance, renovation costs, insurance coverage, and a whole lot more. So really nice deep dive into many of the topics that most first-time investors have on their minds before they pull their trigger on their very first deal. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you again on the other side. Yeah, no problem. Yep, go for it. So I've been uh, looking at your email again, and you've right. mentioned that you're thinking about a few potential strategies with, without financing and so forth. Right, exactly. That uh, I mean, quickly, um, my idea is kind of like trying to figure out a way to get like, more like stable like side income i guess yeah um and so as i said in the email i guess like there's like three different kind of ways at the moment how i would look at it um just basically like buying cash by like selling some stocks 
or just like save up and then buy in cash or go with a loan. But I think that's something I would like to talk to you as well. So what, what you think about like, those things or like what might make sense? I don't know, like you probably know much better than <laughs> I do about all those things. Well, I can't comment about the option of selling other investments to buy into this one because I don't know what the rest of your portfolio is like and if it's right, right, right. Um, with loan or not, um, I mean, look, obviously, a lot of people are into um, not using their own cash. Um, and many, many of the people who contact us are of the same mind. Uh, just the things to bear is that... Um, One, when you're purchasing with a loan, you're limited to whatever the bank or the lender's criteria specifies. So some of them will only lend for central Tokyo. Some of them will only lend for certain ages of property or certain purposes. Like you can only use it for um, long-term residential, for example. You might not be able to do any sort of income hacking by doing short-term rentals. Mm -hmm. They might not consider commercial properties um and so forth so that's one aspect of it and the other is is that if you're applying for a property and that uh, application is dependent on lender approval then somebody might come in and just take it off your hands with cash that's the only thing um, unless you're pre-approved so if you're pre-approved by the lender and you can submit that pre-approval letter along with your application then that's not going to be an issue mm -hmm. okay yeah yeah i think from my side as well I'm, i'm not really sure about if i mean especially like with a with, with like some kind of like first property if, if a loan makes sense um, I, i called uh, smbc prestia the other day and they they don't seem like opposed to like in, in uh, lending to a person in my situation but it, it feels it might be a bit big for like a, a first property <laughs> to get like well, just a that's i guess the other thing with a loan is is that there's always i mean in japan it's not as much as a risk as in other countries but there's always the slight risk that if for any reason you can't make payments they could foreclose mm -hmm. Um, and that's obviously never an issue if it's just your cash and it's 100% owned by you from the get-go. Um, but look, I mean, it's really a personal preference. I mean, we, my wife and I, for example, don't like to take on debt and we don't like to owe money to anyone. We prefer to just build it slow and steady. But I guess 90% of the world are very happy with taking out loans and purchasing property, right? So I, I, I mean, I, I can't presume to, to, to relate to your personal circumstances. It's entirely up to you. Uh, yeah, maybe yeah. It, it would help if you could tell me, you mentioned stocks. So what, what are your other investments around the world looking like? Are they sort of um, more cash flow oriented, more growth oriented, speculative, less speculative, liquid, non-liquid? What, what else are you invested in? Uh, so yeah, basically, I just started off. I started out like I think three, four years ago um, with like all this kind of like um, financial uh, planning, personal finance. Before that, I was pretty like um, let's say like financial illiterate, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> And so what I did now is just basically buy um, very low cost like mutual funds in Japan, okay. in mainly like uh, tax advantaged accounts. Yep. So very standard like worldwide. Um, index funds um so stable kind of safe probably not not super high on the dividends but probably quite well positioned to grow over time kind of thing 
Right. It's much more growth. I think it's like uh, because it's Japanese mutual funds, they basically do not pay out any dividends. Oh, they don't? I didn't know that. It's just, okay. it's just like um, reinvested uh, everything that's paid out. So it's much more like growth over time. Yep. Um, so I'm looking more for something like on the side that I think is much more like, I guess, uh, something like psych emotional, psychology, psychological, I guess, with um, just like this steady inflow of like uh, money, right? Like you get like with rental properties, I guess. Yeah. It's just like every month you get some kind of like uh, payments, which might help me in my situation, for example, like let's say like in a, in a downturn with the stocks that you are like less inclined to like say like devil in there or like sell or like do whatever like just well i guess most that's a factor that you might want to consider is that most of the lenders will probably just by virtue of their criteria they're probably going to direct you towards similar investments on the property side right they also prefer a safe and stable a lower yield but less of a chance of the uh, property losing its value less of a chance of having um significant vacancies uh, less old properties and more new properties where they can sort of project that the estimate costs are not the maintenance costs are not going to be um too overwhelming so they'll probably just by virtue of what they'll allow and what they won't allow they're probably going to direct you towards more um i don't know what to call vanilla type investments which is not a bad thing i mean they are safe and stable but it depends on what kind of paycheck you're looking for on a monthly basis i guess right i think that's again like what you had mentioned now is uh, would be for a loan right like uh, if they yeah. want to direct you to those kind of like uh, more yeah. like safe like uh, yeah yeah, I think like for like Presti as well, I think it's like the minimum value of like one property needs to be like Isemanen or above. Oh, like, even uh, for a resident? Uh, yes, I think so. From okay, what I, I thought that was just a requirement for a non-residence. Okay, so, well, then you're looking at a cash deposit that's going to be equal to whatever you'll be buying in cash, right? Because you're looking at... Right, exactly. So it would be, it would come down to the same thing. Like probably, as I said in the email, it probably will be something three to five million yen in cash. Like yeah. no so, matter what option I, I go for. Which is, I mean, that's the starting point of what you'll be able to get if you were to own the entire uh, unit, just a condo unit on your own, right? Three to five million is what uh, what we call a low budget investment unit starts for. Right, right. Um, so not much of a difference from your cash outlay there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think I'm personally I'm tending also more like to, towards a, a cash purchase, I guess, like just to keep the initial like uh, expense kind of low and not owing any money to anyone, I guess, and then see like you know how how does it. How does it yeah. work? How does it be? I mean, look, that, that's the reason that I personally like cash purchases too, is because you're in control. You don't need mm -hmm. to buy what anybody else thinks you should be buying and what they might be conservatively thinking is more appropriate. Um, but look, again, that's just me. I don't, I, I can't really say one or one, one of them is better than the other. It's, it's total personal preference. Right. Absolutely. I do understand that.
So, I mean, let's maybe it'll help if we just compare what you'll get in both cases, right? So, if you're looking at, I'm assuming that you would be going for the minimum loan, right? The the SEMA? Right, yes. I think uh, anything else would be a bit out of my league again. I think. So, if we're looking, so if we're looking at a single asset that's valued, that, that's a market whose market price is about Senman, that would normally be, and it has to be a single asset, right? I think that's uh, what they said, yes, like one one property needs to be yeah. valued if the money or more. Okay, so you're looking at something that would generate um, in Tokyo or Osaka, maybe 5% before tax, if we're lucky. Uh, five and a half if we're super lucky. And then in other cities, maybe up to five and a half, six-ish. Um, and if you're going to be looking at a property that's probably built around 2000 or maybe 1995, uh, in a fairly, well, in Tokyo and Osaka, maybe not super central, but in other cities, probably a fairly central location. Um, and then if you're using that same amount, so the three to five million you're going to be buying in cash, then you could probably branch out into satellite cities, prefectural capitals. So places like, uh, if it's near Tokyo, maybe places like Saitama or Chiba City, uh, maybe Kobe if it's around Osaka, um, for three to five, maybe closer to five, you could definitely buy into Fukuoka as well. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely Nagoya. Um, you could definitely buy in Sapporo as well, but there we want to aim for higher yields because the winters can be rough on maintenance and also longer vacancies. Um, maybe Kyoto, if we're lucky. Uh, Kumamoto those sort of places. If you're going for a single asset at Senman Yen via a loan, I'm guessing that the lenders will probably direct you to Tokyo, Osaka, maybe Kobe, Yokohama, Fukuoka, but I'm guessing not any other cities. Uh, I think they said it's only Tokyo and the surrounding areas, Chiba. Okay, so that, that sounds like totally the non-resident loan. What, what's the interest rate on that one? Do you remember? 2.3, I guess. Okay. Like 10 years. okay, so it might be as well that it's like the non-resident loan, but uh, that's what no. they told me. I think the non-resident loan, the interest rate was a little bit higher, but it sounds like the other criteria are quite identical. Okay, so I, I do not have permanent residency, so maybe that's... Ah, okay, so it is a non-resident. Okay, okay, it is non-resident. Okay, that, that's what you mean with a non-resident okay. okay. So it is a non-resident loan, but they're not forcing you to set up a company because you are you are actually living in Japan, right? right. They, didn't mention, they didn't mention you'd need to set up a company or have a corporate structure, right? No, they just asked me for my employment uh, situation. Okay. okay, so that's what it is. It's a non-resident loan just without the uh, corporate requirement. Right. Well, okay. Like that. Well, do you know when you're going to get your residency? Um... I think that depends. I am here in Japan now since five years, I guess. So okay. if I go with the normal one, probably a few more years, I guess. Or otherwise, if I can apply for this highly skilled specialist visa, it might be quicker. But uh, 
I do not know if I qualify for that. Well, I would definitely advise if you're going to go for a loan, I definitely advise to do that when you've got your permanency, because then you'll be able to approach a few more banks and you're going to get lower interest rates and you'll be able mm -hmm. to purchase, purchase in other locations as well. Right, because otherwise, again, like uh, it just shaves off like 2.5% on the total yield, right? Um, yes, but I mean, it's not going to be a lot better. It's still an investment loan, so it's not going to be low rates like the homeowner loans. It's probably going to be somewhere between one and a half to 2%. Okay, yeah. So it's a little bit better, uh, but the, the main thing is that it's not going to be only Tokyo and it's not going to be only Sema. Okay, okay, so it's like more freedom it's a lot in more flexible. Yeah, it's a lot more flexible. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, otherwise, before that, I don't know that there's a huge advantage. I mean, there's not a huge advantage to getting the loan if it's with these terms, I would think. Mm -hmm. um, the LTV ratio is going to be about the same. So you're still going to have to put in somewhere between 30 to, four, as 30 to 50% cash. Right. Uh, that's not going to change. Oh, for investment loans, maybe closer to 30, 40 than uh, 40, 50. Right. I think they told me like 30 down is like the, the minimum. Yeah. For that one. Yeah. Okay. But it sounds probably like a better idea to go with um, a cash purchase initially and then see like where, where things lead in that sense. Okay. That's my tendency, but again, that's my personal tendency. I can't speak for everyone. No, I, I think I did. I do agree with you there. I guess in that sense, that might make more sense in my situation, for, at least for the moment. Yeah. Um, something like completely different. Um, we were thinking about. I mean, that's maybe longer down the road. But like, what, what do you think, like personally, about like you know, buying like a full, like whole apartment blocks. And then also like living within like that block, like uh, let's say you have like a full block with like the top floor where you can live in, and then you have like maybe four units or something like that which you rent out. Is this something like you you've had people do or like do you have some? People do do that, but um, one of the main advantages in doing that is if you can get a home loan, a loan with home loan terms. Mm -hmm that you're actually also using as an investment. And to satisfy that criteria, half of the living space or more has to be your personal residence. So if you're buying a four to six unit block, you can't just live in one of them. You have to, for example, if it's two floors, one floor has to be you, the other floor has to be uh, the investment units. Right. And otherwise, it's a normal investment loan. So there's not really any advantage in you living there unless you want to be close to your tenants. But if your tenants are going to be Japanese tenants, having a gaijin landlord living overhead is going to freak them out. So it's not necessarily going to help you to uh, occupy those units. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I was more thinking about like this kind of like uh, hybrid situation because now, uh, for example, our company went like fully remote and it doesn't seem like they go back uh, ever yeah so we could basically like as well i mean that's definitely something i have to get my would have get my wife on board as well but um where you basically get like both of these like you know pay your own like uh, like your tenants pay your own rent as well in that sense like i would in japan i would only go that way if you're planning to market specifically to foreign tenants okay if you're going for japanese tenants um that's going to right there cut a 
cut half of your potential tenants just because the gaijin landlord is living there oh, okay i see so it makes more sense to have like a units all over the place and let them pay your rent like that like well, it's a good idea to own a small building if you can afford it rather than individual units because you do have a much larger land plot so you stand to gain more mm -hmm. and you also have the creative freedom to consider you don't have to do it well whenever you want but you can consider down the track turning it for example into a airbnb if the local municipality allows it or into a short-term rentals more easily and you can right. decide that you can also rent out the units as an office and not necessarily only as that. So you have more creative freedom with the property. Whereas if you own single units in uh, blocks that have owner unions and building management companies, there's going to be a lot of bylaws that you're going to have to adhere to. So you're okay. not going to be able to do nearly as much with the property as you would have been if you owned all of it. Uh, but to buy to buy into those, you're never looking at less than, I mean, in, in reasonable areas, you're never looking at less than 30, 35 million. Okay, yeah, probably around that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I think that's like definitely like uh, <laughs> no question like for the first purchase, but just something like was like uh, in my mind, I guess. Yeah. Right. Okay. Let's say like I'd go with um, just an initial like cash purchase for like anywhere like between three to five million, and you know how, how is that like in, from a standpoint of like diversification? Is this like um, you would only have like one unit, right? Or would you say like it makes more sense? Okay, no, like save up more money and then go like for like three, for example. So maybe in case like something happens or like some uh, tenants are like uh, not in there like these kind of things like what, what do you think about that well diversity is always a good idea if it makes sense within your budget but let's say if your entire budget is five million yen then yes you mm -hmm. could potentially get two uh two and a half million yen properties yeah um, but then by definition you're buying in very specific locations and you're marketing to a very specific tenant profile mm -hmm. Um, so you're not really gaining all that diversity. You're pretty much, I mean, the, the deals would come from very particular location. The tenant would always be low income earners. Um, if you've got, uh, let's say, Hapyakuman or Senman, like 80,000, 100,000 US, then maybe it makes more sense to divide that into two or three units. Mm -hmm. So if each is around like 3 million and something like that. Either that or maybe something like uh, one for four, one for six. So you've got something a bit lower end, something a bit higher end, and the tenant profile okay. is different, the location is different, uh, the size is different because obviously um, properties that are up to 20, 25 square meters attract singles and properties that are bigger attract couples and beyond that it's families. So I would try to diversify within the tenant profile if I can as well. Mm -hmm. And because the economy, depending on how it goes and how the location specifically goes, the economy can be kinder or less kind to families or kinder or less kind to singles, depending on what's happening at any given time. Right. And also some locations are more blue color, some locations are more white color. So if you've got five, I wouldn't try to diversify. I'd probably aim to get the best property that you can within that. Mm -hmm. um, if you got eight or more, it starts to make more sense, I'd say. Now we're going to interrupt this broadcast. I always wanted to say that we're going to interrupt this broadcast to give you a quick reminder that NTI is now partnered with Meta Securities Hospitality Property Fund.
and they're offering their mind-blowingly gorgeous Machia townhouses in Kyoto. So there's four of them, each about 100 years or older, lovingly restored and renovated to modern standards luxury. Stunning architecture and comfort, all the modern conveniences, including uh, your scenic indoor or outdoor bath, spectacular dining and sitting rooms, disgustingly decadent Japanese or Western-style bedrooms, high-speed Wi-Fi internet, kitchen, outdoor decks, Japanese gardens, the works. Now, each of these homes can comfortably host two or three families, including kids. So anywhere from one or two guests and all the way up to a dozen or so. And you can rent the entire house to yourself. So no other guests. It's all yours. Run around naked all day and night long, if that's your thing. Supreme Japanese-style luxury accommodation. And since at the moment there are still no foreign tourists in Kyoto, these places are available for rent at ridiculously low prices. So we're talking as little as $430 for a whole week. That's right, luxury accommodation for an entire clan, two families or more, for as little as four, five, or $600 a week. Obviously, the longer the stay, the cheaper the rate is, but you can rent these for anywhere between one or two nights and up to a month or more. So perfect for a weekend getaway, extended holiday, workation, family reunion, company retreat, or even as a gift to a valued client, whatever you might have in mind. And if you book these through our website, you're also going to get an added bonus of one or more 3,000 yen. So that's $30 QO cards, QUO. Those are gift cards that you can use all around the country in convenience stores, restaurants, various stores, lifestyle shops, you name it. The number of cards you'll get depends on the length of the stay, but you'll always get at least one of these. So if you're in Japan, or even if you're out of Japan, but you think that you might be able to get in sometimes in the next year or two, and you've been thinking about spending some time in Kyoto, this is your chance to nab the best accommodation deal possible. So we'll link to the bookings page, which also has some amazing photo galleries for each of these properties on offer. Now they all come with a fully equipped kitchen, but you can also choose to have your meals delivered to the property if that's your thing. The operator can arrange that for you at very reasonable prices. And if you can't see the show notes for any reason, just go to our website, nippontradings.com. That's N-I-P-P-O-N tradings with an S, all one word, nippontradings.com forward slash Kyoto hyphen holiday hyphen rentals, or just go to nippontradings.com and you'll see the Kyoto holiday rentals option on the top right menu bar. Now we are already taking bookings, so some of the properties may not be available on your dates, but me, the security guys are super accommodating and they'll do their best to find you an available property for whenever it is you're planning your trip, get on there, book your inquiry and take that dream holiday in Kyoto that you've been fantasizing about while these phenomenal prices are still available. And now back to the podcast. Okay, yeah, I see. But I, it, it's not particularly like like a problem to just like buy one property first and then like see like how it goes and then yeah, no, maybe later good. down the road like buy like another one. That's what most of our customers do, yeah. They test okay, the they one, they wait for about a year, they see that the income is okay, that the tenants are reasonably easy to deal with and then they mm -hmm. expand their budget accordingly. Okay, good. Makes sense, that makes sense, okay. Same, same with buildings, by the way. If you were talking about a higher budget, you would start with a smaller, more safe and stable central building and then 
on the next purchase after everything go, goes according to plan on the next purchase mm-hmm. you buy a bigger building and maybe in a more high yield location and so forth the so same same dynamics the same the same principle applies okay I see um I wrote down some stuff um, I might be interested in talking about so like another thing is well like as you said like um like like how hands-off can this whole thing be like uh, basically um uh, It depends on if you're working directly with the third parties or if you're working with someone like a house here Japanese by the way I think I'm fairly I'm okay getting around I mean like my companies as well like probably 80% Japanese 20% English so okay. I so can you read, can you read and uh, understand uh, written documents in Japanese including all the kanji and stuff? I'd say like mostly but I think like if it comes to like those legal documents and stuff like that I probably would have like a hard time there or like that, that's until settlement but I mean after settlement let's say for example you get a monthly report from the property manager uh, just detailing the income and expenses and that sort of thing and you get an annual report from building management saying that they're planning a renovation for next year and they want you to sign if you approve this and this that that sort of thing Mm-hmm. yeah I think probably like g- given enough time to, to to read I think it would be able to like figure it out okay uh, well I mean we represent customers either or so we either help them until settlement and then we leave them directly communicating with the property management company building management company and the insurance company mm-hmm. and then it's basically just receiving and consuming documents uh, until there's a decision to be made so for a vacancy or for a building management owners union voting about something um, insurance policies you might need to make a few choices when you renew a policy um, but it's fairly hands-off the more properties you accumulate the more it becomes hands-on because every once in a while you're going to have a vacancy every once in a while there's going to be something that's happening in the building that needs uh, attendance um, so we can represent you post settlement as well we can handle everything on your behalf and just give you bottom lines to sign off on okay yeah and then I, I think it's, in my opinion I'd like to be like very very hands-off I guess um, Well, I guess at least for the start, maybe for the first couple of years, maybe you can work through us and then you can decide by yourself if you want to take on matters to your own hand. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, if, if it makes sense to like uh, take over something, but I think like in, in general, I'm probably like a very like hands-off investor or so far. I mean, that's why yeah. I kind of like these like uh, mutual funds and stuff like that. It's just- that's Most of our customers again. You throw money at it and <laughs> the rest ends itself. Yeah. I mean, there's still decisions to be made, but we'll try to- um, We'll try to uh, just give you really summaries and just a yes no kind of uh, decision but that that could be with you as well right you say basically okay this is uh, this is coming up and like uh, we would you to like to decide on this and that and yep. that's what we do we for can... 85 90 of our customers okay yeah that sounds uh, probably exactly for what I'm looking for mm. okay good yeah I think it's really just for me like try to like test it out I guess that's how I learn best like uh, take a small amount of money and just see how it how it works how it feels if it's something I can imagine keep on doing or not yeah. well four or five million yen will let me enable me to give you a few more choices if we're sticking to two or three million yen 
Um, it's going to be very specific locations, very specific types of properties. Uh, if you can stretch your budget to four or five, then we can look at a few cities. It's still not going to be Tokyo or Osaka, but at least a good few other places. Um, so that enables me to give you some potentials from different types of, again, different types of properties, different locations and different tenant profiles. Mm -hmm. and so if I you say like a five million, like a, what? What do we speak of, like, you know, like on, on top of 5 million, like this kind of like the, the value of the property is 5 million, right? The and purchase price is 5 million, you mean the purchase cost? Yes, like everything like included. Like So worst case, uh, we usually estimate 20% purchase costs. 20%. And usually, usually by settlement, it's going to be closer to something like 17, maybe 18%. Mm-hmm. And that includes uh, the realtor's fee, which is 3% plus 60,000 plus tax. So it usually works out to be, for cheaper properties, usually works out to be four and a half, five percent 5%. And then our fee, which is 5%, we have a minimum cap too, but the minimum cap is 5% of 5 million. So that sounds like what you'd be looking at. And then the purchase tax, which is a bill that you get after a settlement, is depends on the official evaluation of the property, which can be different to market price, but it usually averages as, as two and a half, two point six percent. And then the legal and registration fees, um, again, they vary depending on the official evaluation, but they're usually between three to eight percent. It's a bit hard to tell in advance. Because again, the official eval can be quite different to market price. Mm -hmm. um, so we add all of that together and we start with a worst case estimate of 20%. And like I said, by settlement, it'll usually be down to about 17, 18. For cheaper properties, if the budget is higher, it's going to be in closer to 15, 16. If it's even higher, for, like for a building, it's usually somewhere between 11 to 13 and so forth. Okay, I see. Okay, so you'd say like with a, a four or five million property, you probably look at like uh, actually six million, six something uh, for like actual purchase costs all together. Worst case, hopefully less than mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I think that might be possible. Yeah, I think yeah. maybe with like this kind of like uh, saving up for a bit and selling some stocks or something like well, that. With five million, we can probably even look at Yokohama, Kawasaki. We see some deals coming out of there at five million occasionally. Uh, Kobe City, so it would get you close to Tokyo and Osaka at least. Um, and yeah. definitely, definitely Fukuoka as well, which is a very good location. Um, Nagoya, I'm just thinking of the bigger cities. So Nagoya too. Um, Nagoya, we can get even even cheaper, but Nagoya can be a bit rougher tenant-wise. Uh, it's more blue collar than the rest of the locations I've just mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it's, it's Japan. You don't have like delinquents, but you do have occasional late payments or maybe a few more vacancies compared to other cities. Okay, I see. Okay, so I, like basically the the... the the pros of like having um, properties in like these areas is just like less hassle in general or like easier resale value and stuff like that. Shorter vacancies for one, it's easier to populate mm -hmm. a property when it becomes vacant. Um, the other thing is that yes, the value tends to retain itself a lot better than in smaller places. Mm -hmm. And even, I mean, if the, the grand uh, scheme of things, if the economy in Japan does well, then those locations are poised to gain in value.
whereas with the other locations, they're, I mean, they might gain slightly occasionally, but they're definitely not going to be in leaps and bounds. But the, the upside of the smaller locations is that the yield tends to be higher because property prices are lower and the rental yields, percentage-wise, the rental yields can be higher. So they can be as high as 7 or 8% before tax. Mm -hmm. okay. Whereas all of the other places that I've mentioned, Tokyo, Osaka, I'd say not beyond 6, and that's rare. Uh, Fukuoka, Nagoya, not beyond 7, and that's rare. Um, so that's the only, but if, again, if you're looking at a first investment, I probably would advise to make it a bit more safe and stable. Mm -hmm. yeah. As you expand, maybe get a bit more adventurous, try some prefectural capital, satellite cities, and so forth. Okay, make, makes sense, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And so basically, like this, the, the rental income, is it um, calculated as just regular income, like, uh, how do you say? Like For income tax purposes? Yes, right. Yes, regular. It's it just gets added to your total income, and you get tax based on that. Right. So you're taxed based on your income. Yes, but you'll be carrying you'll be carrying your purchase costs forward for three years. So for the first three years, you're going to be tax free on the rental income because your purchase costs. Let's say that uh, let's call it twenty percent, just the worst case. So the the twenty percent twenty percent purchase costs that you've paid. Um, you're going to be declaring them as expenses. So you're obviously not going to be making 20% uh, rental income every year. So for the first three years, which is the limit of how long you can carry them, uh, that property rental income will not be factored into your income tax. Okay, so it's, it's tax deductible. Okay, I see. Yes. Okay. Is there like other things as well you can, like from a tax advantage point, like to lower your income tax? Um, as an individual, there's not a huge amount that you can do. You can, for example, if the property is in Fukuoka, you take a trip to Fukuoka, that may be tax deductible because you came to look at the property. Okay, I see. Uh, that kind of thing. But beyond that, not much. Um, but I do. Do you have an accountant that you work with for your taxes? No, not yet. Um, but that's definitely oh, something I have to look into. As a salary man, that's not really necessary. But I'll put you in right. touch with uh, yeah, I'll put you in touch with an accountant who can probably advise a bit more. Um, it's a good idea if you will want to because you do already have an income in Japan. Uh, it's probably right. a good idea to hire an accountant as soon as you start uh, purchasing property, so they can start claiming deductions. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I guess yeah. They're also probably yeah, able to a very affordable one. They'll only charge you, I think, uh, five thousand yen per property per annum. Is, is nothing serious. Okay. Do, do they also help with like uh, I don't know, like let's for example say like you know uh, the whole like stock thing or like these kind of things you can use them for. If that's part of your income. They'll factor your income and your salary and everything into your income tax, but they don't advise on uh, stocks and stuff. Okay, yeah, no, I mean, like, for example, let's say, like, I sell some kind of, like, uh, stocks and stuff like that, if they can take care of that as well, like... They'll take care of your income and expense declarations and minimize your taxes as much as possible, wherever, right. your, wherever your income might be coming from. But that that price that I've quoted, the 5,000 yen, is if they're only dealing with your property income, because you've also got a salary and you've also got other sources of income, and they'll need to quote you on that separately. Okay, yeah.
Yeah, but still, I think it seems kind of affordable, I guess, from what you said, like 5,000 yen per property. Well, for the property, but I'm guessing they wouldn't be too expensive on the other fronts as well. Okay. Yeah, I think that would be great if, uh, if you probably have like some people you work together with already, or like if you can like uh, let me know their contacts. I'll send you an email with, uh, I'll send an introductory email directly to you and the accountant and you can take it with them. Okay, good. Thank you very much. Um, something else, it's like, what would you say, for example, you know, what kind of like percentage of the unit price should you have like on hand, like um, liquid cash, for example, you know, in, in case of like repairs or like uh, th these kind of things, is there like some kind of like rule of thumb or? There's a statistical average, but those averages come into play when you've got a large portfolio over a large period, uh, over a long period of time. Um, I'm just hesitant to give that as a rule of thumb because if you're only owning the one property, mm -hmm. you, you know, you could be looking at a situation where, you know, you purchase the property and then for the next 15 years, nothing happens. The tenant stays happy and everything's okay. And then, they could move out a month after settlement and you're suddenly faced with a, a large renovation bill, right? So I'm just a bit hesitant. Right. I could say statistically, probably put 10% of the gross income aside for vacancies and maintenance and so forth. Okay. Yeah, um, and you should probably bear in mind that if, if you're looking at a 5 million yen budget, you're probably looking at a 1R or 1DK at most. Mm -hmm. And those properties usually unless someone's lived there, like a dirty old man lived there for 20 years, but in all normal situations, you're probably not looking at anything beyond $2,000 for renovation and repairs. Okay, so that's probably like whenever like uh, there's a tenant renewal, like you look at some kind of costs around in that. Yes, so we normally evaluate something between four to $700 per year of tenancy. Okay. Um, and single men tend to cost more, single women tend to cost less, depending on their age as well. A young professional takes care of the property better than a, an old uh, pensioner kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so it varies, but I'd say if you want to be on the safe side, put 10% of the gross rental income uh, aside every year. For um, should, for most, in most cases, that should cover it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's just like uh, trying to like wrap my head around like, you know, like what, what kind of like costs could you look at or could you face uh, in terms but of- like, Some idea, like for example, a brand, let's say you've got an air conditioner unit in there, that's pretty common. Uh, they usually go after anywhere between 10 to 15 years. And so a brand new one, as part of a renovation of the apartment, a brand new one might be, 75,000 yen, including installation and removal of the old one. Mm -hmm. And if the hot boiler goes, which is after 15, 20 years, that could be anywhere between, depending if it's electric or gas. So anywhere between Juman to Nijuman, would I? Um, a complete replacement of the bathroom, but that's really something that you'll only do if it's never been done in the property since it was built kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, that might be 10,000, but that's very rare that it happens. So for example, if, if you're gonna be purchasing a property that's vacant, then you're gonna get a property that's been recently renovated. So you know that your 
you're free of any big expenses for at least a good mm-hmm. five, six years. Um, if you're buying a property that's tenanted, then you're buying straight into income from day one. But then if the tenant's been in place for, say, 10 or 15 years, which is not rare in Japan, it's quite common, mm-hmm. um, then you know that when they're moving out, you might be up for a bigger bill, right? So there's there's pros and cons to both situations. But we'll try to evaluate when we recommend particular properties and we start getting the tenant due diligence information and we know their profile and how long they're living there, then we can probably make some estimates as to what it's going to cost you if and when they move out. Right, okay, so that's all information you're getting, right? Like basically before you buy, like how long has the tenant been there? And like- yes, so that, that's all okay. part of the due diligence, but not all of it will be available before you make an offer. So the agents here, it's a very active market and the agents don't go out of their way before they get an offer on the table. Mm-hmm. So we can submit an offer and that offer we're always going to write is pending due diligence, meaning if we find anything about the building's renovation history or the reserve funds or the tenant information that's not satisfactory, we can still pull back the offer. It's not legally committing. Okay. And so that's what we'll do. And then we'll start getting due diligence info and then we'll make uh, recommendations. We're going to say, okay, well, the risk factor here is slightly higher than what we thought because of this and this and that. So maybe we can reduce the offer by say 10% because of that and so forth. Or if there's a huge red flag, we might say, no, let's, let's not go with this one because this and this and this might happen. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. I think that's definitely something I need like your experience and like uh, input on because I don't think that I'm going to be able to like do that on my own. Yep. We're happy to, uh, that's what we get hired for. Okay, good. Let me quickly see if I have anything else here. Okay, I don't know, like, is anything else like I wrote down is like, you know, is there a, a chance of like a total loss or something? Like, is this even possible, like, that you are out on like whatever you put in and it's just gone? It hasn't happened to us yet, but I suppose uh, if the building gets destroyed in an earthquake, that's definitely one option where it might happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got insurance that covers the interior of the property, and that covers up to 50% in case of an earthquake. Okay. And then if the building is completely destroyed, then the building's reserve fund pool will be first used to remove the uh, remove the remains of the building and then whatever's left will be distributed between the owners. Okay, I see. And in that case, still like this insurance pay, like the, the actually like half of the value of the apartment you bought or is that gone as well in that sense? Yeah, yeah no, you get both. Okay. You get both. Yeah. So there's several levels of compensation. That's one of them. The the reserve fund distribution is another. If there is anything in the reserve fund, and then mm-hmm. the tenant would have their own insurance for their own possessions and any bodily harm and so forth. Okay, I see. And yeah. we would also get. Um, we would recommend. We get by default for all of our customers, unless they instruct us not to. We get. Um, uh, coverage for death in the property. Okay, in, in case uh, a tenant yeah. dies. Or like, yeah, so we used to only get it for elderly tenants and then we had one person die who was like 47 or something. Mm-hmm. So these days we get it for all tenants. 
Okay. And that's an extra, now it's about 30, 35 bucks a year, but it might go up as the population gets older, I'm assuming, because it used to be uh, about two, 20 bucks a year, like 2,000 yen. Now it's uh, 3,035. And that covers you for up to 1 million yen in renovation, removal, repairs, and also for two years of missing or reduced rental income, because it could be a bit harder to uh, rent the unit out once someone's died in there. The, the property managers are obliged to tell the first tenant afterwards. Right, okay. Um, so that's highly, I mean, for the amount it costs you every year, it's really highly recommended to get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have had, uh, I'm sorry to have to say this, but we do regularly get aged tenants dying in properties. So. It's definitely not a, a, an uncommon occurrence. It's definitely worth having. Oh, yeah. It makes sense as well in Japan, I guess, with the aging population. Yep. Right. Uh, quickly getting back to, like, before when we talked about, like, you know, earthquakes, natural disasters, if, if you, like, buy properties, uh, how important is it to, like, check, like, uh, hazard maps and, like, uh, where the properties are located and stuff like that? Well, with earthquakes, I th I'd say it's like Russian roulette, right? Like, I mean, there are certain areas that are very earthquake prone, but having said mm -hmm. that, that's all of Tokyo, right? Right. So there's really, I mean, I don't think there's anywhere we could buy where we could avoid earthquakes. So there aren't mm -hmm. any particular hazard maps for earthquake. What you do want to look at is uh, potential for landslides. And the realtors are obliged to report that to you before you purchase the property. So if that property is in a landslide zone, they'll let you know. Because mm -hmm. when earthquakes do occur, or even when typhoons occur, um, areas that are in landslide hazard zones uh, could definitely be damaged. Um, as well as tenants, they could be evacuated and then never come back sort of thing. So that's something that we need to be aware of. But aside from that, I mean, I wouldn't purchase right next to a nuclear power plant, but otherwise that's it. Okay, and then like as well, like uh, close to the ocean in that sense, you know, like uh, tsunami areas or like uh, like floor liqu liquefaction, these that's, kind of things. Yeah. That's kind of like the earthquake, right? Like whenever an earthquake hits, a tsunami could hit in that spot as well if it's near the ocean. Um, mm -hmm. And also, I don't know what's near the ocean. Like in Tohoku, areas were you know obliterated. There were a good few kilometers from the the right. from the beach. Mm -hmm. So I don't. We haven't specifically. We we don't get too many properties that are right near the beach, except in some locations. Just because usually near the beach means it's a long walk to the nearest train station. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so unless somebody's aiming for a beachside property, we normally don't get anything that's closer than 15, 20 minute walk to the ocean. Um, but if anything turns up, we can just review it on a case by case basis, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, I just was wondering, as like, for example, like this uh, as well with tsunami and things, it's covered as well like an earthquake insurance or is that like something? Yes, because tsunamis are, are initiated by earthquakes. So they're by covered, an earthquake. Not, not explicitly, but they're covered as part of earthquake coverage. Okay. Um, so our fires and the building maintenance takes care of typhoon damages because that's mostly to the exterior of the building. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, what else? Yeah, I mean, there's floods and water, which would partly cover you for landslides, but landslides, I would avoid areas with the landslide hazards in any case. Okay, yeah, good. Good. 
And uh, just very basic question again is like the the whole like repair funds and like these this, the sink funds that's paid by the tenant, right? No, that's paid by the owner. Paid by the owner. Okay, that's like not included in. So when we give you deal analysis spreadsheets to look at a property before you're thinking to apply for it, that would show what the building fees are. And those would be management fees, uh, which can have a few components and reserve funds separately. And then we would also, after we apply, we would get the total amount in the reserve fund that's been accumulated. And we would also get the building's renovation history. Mm-hmm. And we like to make sure that the two correlate. So if the reserve fund pool is depleted, we want to see that that's reflected in pretty significant renovations in the last decade or so. And on the other hand, if no renovations have been done in the last decade or so, we'd like to see that there's plenty of money in the reserve funds to pull them off when they're required. And uh, if there is no recent renovations and also no reserve fund, we need to see a really good reason for that. Otherwise, we'd probably say not to go ahead with that. Oh, okay. I see. Okay. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's all the all the questions I've written down here so far. Okay. Okay. So what I'll do is now that I know your budget, do you have any minimum yield requirements, any particular location criteria, anything that we should be basing the potentials we send to you on? Um, no, not not particular. I think like really like this. As like an initial purchase and like this kind of like, just getting to know trying, more. Yeah, yeah, just trying to get a get to know get a, a feeling of like how things work. So I don't really like mind uh, any, anything. I think probably if it's like a, a kind of like more like a secure, stable area that you say like uh, it's easy to tenant uh, find tenants. And, okay, uh, and resale value is kind of like. Okay, right. as well. So uh, I'll get pretty um, that you've been communicating with. I'll get her to send you all potentials that we have that are within the what five or six million. What are we looking at? Uh, I'd say like five, I guess. Five million. Okay. So yeah. all properties that are up to around five million. She might include a few that are slightly more than that because we can negotiate the price sometimes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that'll give you a rough idea of what you can have within that price range. And then you can get back to us with any questions or we can just uh, like play make-believe and say which one we like more than the other one, why. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then if at any point you're ready to move forward and you want to be able to start submitting offers and get your foot in the door and conduct due diligence, let us know. And then we'll kick off the engagement process, which means we'll need uh, two forms signed and stamped and we'll need our fee estimate paid in advance for the first purchase. Okay. And then we'll credit or debit you post-settlement, depending on whatever the actual purchase price ends up being. From the second purchase and onwards, we can just bill you on settlement. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, I think like as well, as I said, like I think in the email, I'm like not particularly in a hurry to buy anything and maybe like need some time as well to like uh, save up some more money in cash. You're already on, you're already on our mailing list, right? Right, I asked uh, Pretty to put me on there. Um, okay, so you'll get occasional like a feel for. Yeah, so you'll get occasional sample listings, but those are going to be all of them, including where stuff that's way over your budget and holiday properties and stuff like that. Yeah, that's completely so okay. That's okay. Now that I know your criteria, I'll tell her to also send you specific listings and spreadsheets for those listings that fit your criteria, so you'll be able to dig a little bit deeper into the ones that would potentially suit you. Suit it. 
Good. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, sorry. I think we're cutting out there a bit. Uh, yeah, I can still hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. No, that sounds great. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, as well, like I have to say, like really, uh, very, very appreciate your uh, podcast work you're doing. It's a uh, fantastic and like a lot of um, information, like really great content. That, uh, very kind of you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's like uh, <laughs> a funny story, but I think like your podcast was my uh, 2019 top listened podcast on Spotify. I think. Oh man, I'm blushing now. Stop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Right, right. I think I had like a, while working, just like uh, keep listening to <laughs> to your podcast. That's brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Good. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time today, and uh, you helped me a lot, like in kind of making up my mind. That's uh, great. My pleasure. So we'll start uh, emailing you with samples, and we'll take it from there. Yeah. Please. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Good. Have a nice weekend. Bye bye. You too. All right. That was a good long talk. Hope you found some value in it. And if you've got any questions that you'd like answered, we'd love it if you could hit us up in the comment section and let us know. We're always happy to talk shop, no charge or any kind of commitment required. Just drop us a line and we'll get back to you with some answers. Now, before we go, we're also as always going to tell you and also link to our other sponsors website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com. And he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku!